Okay, so two kinds of people in the world. We have recipe followers. And if you're a recipe follower, you're making cupcakes, you're making a cake, you're making lasagna, you're making taco meat, whatever you're doing, and you follow the recipe. So maybe you have a book, or maybe you have a web address that you go to, and you just kind of like are scrolling through, making sure you got everything right, and you set everything out, and here's this, and here's this, and here's that. How many of you are a recipe follower? Anybody? Okay, a couple of us, good. Uh, and then the rest of you are adventurous, because you kind of just like, figure it out as you go you shoot from the hip you kind of know like oh it's kind of this much of this it's this much of that it's this much of this other thing and you know how many of you know that the ingredients matter so if we were going to make cookies together you know we would need some butter we would need some flour we would need some sugar that's all that i know you probably need other stuff too that's the end of my cooking wisdom baking wisdom like, what would happen if we used some of the other kinds of ingredients that we had in the cupboard and we just kind of threw it in? Like, I don't know, maybe you have some, like, extra mayo. And you just thought, like, oh, let's throw a little bit of that in there and mix it up. Or, oh, we had um, hamburgers last night and we have a couple leftover pickles and some pickle juice. So let's just dump some of that in there and mix it up. And if someone came into the kitchen and saw you doing that, they wouldn't necessarily know. That there's something that has changed about the whole thing because the ingredients have, have changed. But they would find out, wouldn't they? You throw that in the oven 375 for 13 and a half minutes and that'd be a wonderful surprise that would come out of there. The ingredients matter. And the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to this group of new Jesus followers. These are not people who grew up in Awana. These are not people who have a ton of verses memorized. These are not people who have a legacy of faith. These are not people who grew up going to church with grandma. These are people who have come to recent faith in the Lord Jesus. And Paul knows that new faith is fragile faith. That how things begin is not always the way that things end. And so Paul knows the ingredients matter. And he needs to talk to the Colossians about what is in their mixing bowl. About what things they have decided to believe. What's true about them, about the world, and about the God that has saved them. And don't worry, I don't make cookies with mail. All right, Colossians chapter 2. We find these words. So then, verse 6, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So Paul says, just as you have received Christ, like you've received him, Continue to live in him. This word live in the Greek is this word peripateo, and it means to walk. So we could say, continue to walk in him. And there's a lot of things you can walk in. There's a lot of things you can live in. 
And Paul says, oh, I need to make sure that you are going to continually walk and live in him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So just as you received Christ. So like when you receive Christ, like what is it that you receive? This word receive in the Greek is this word paralambano. And paralambano is usually used to talk about the passing of information from one person to another. And this is how traditions work in families. You just kind of grew up doing a certain kind of thing during the year, and you just kind of pass it along. You paralambano it over and over and over. And Paul's like going to use that word receive in a different way in this context. And he's going to say, no, like it's not just receiving information. It's receiving Christ himself. And so the question for Paul is not do you know the information, but like has the way of Christ become your way? And that's the question that's, I think, in the text for us this morning is like, has the way of Christ become our way? And like, what evidence do we have of that? Like, has his way become our way? Or are we trying to find ways to fit his way into our way? Like the drawer that's just too full and you just keep pushing because it will fit. Like, is that our experience? Or has his way become our way? So, receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. And then in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So see to it that no one takes you captive. It's this word that's really fun to say, geo, and it means to snatch, means to grab, or means to seduce. So make sure that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. So make sure that like no one snatches you. How many of you have someone in your mind, someone in your life experience, and with great grief, you've watched them like be snatched up by things in the world? Like there was a time when their life with God looked a lot different than it does now. And they've been grabbed. They've been snatched up by things. And we all have experienced that because each and every person who's sitting here this morning has experienced that in their own life. I'm very confident that we get snatched up by stuff. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Paul also says, check out that bird and that fish that's on the next slide. That fish is about to get snatched up. That fish's life, uh, it's about to change a little bit. And I think it's a great picture for Paul's fear for the church, for these new followers of Jesus. New faith is fragile faith. So he doesn't want them to get snatched up. So just a question this morning, like what things this year 
have taken you captive? What things have threatened to take you captive? Has worry taken you captive? Has fear taken you captive? Has anger taken you captive? Has bitterness taken you captive? Or how about control? Has control taken you captive? How many of us have learned a really hard lesson this year about control? And about the illusion of it? Don't get snatched up by that. Because it matters what ingredients are in the bowl, Colossians. So we need to make sure that we're not just grabbing ingredients that we have on hand and throwing them into the bowl and just saying, oh, it'll probably be fine. Like, that's how Pastor Dave cooks. It will probably be fine. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's not. It's no way to live as we follow Jesus. And how does captivity happen? Like, how is it that we get snatched up by Fred, the, you know, as Fred the fish, how do we get snatched up? Paul says you get snatched up by what? By hollow and deceptive philosophy. By hollow insult in deceptive philosophy. And the picture that came into my mind when I thought about this is like an amazing house. So, you know, it's like all the things you would want on the outside. Like chipping Joanna Gaines would be like, oh, yes, you get it. Good job. Lots of shiplap on the inside. And you go in and it looks like a dorm room. Like the outside tells a very different story than what the inside tells. It's hollow. So it, it, it seems to offer a lot. It promises a lot on the inside. And then it provides nothing. This hollow and deceptive philosophy. And I think Paul can talk about this because he's lived this in his own life. Paul has been snatched up by hollow and deceptive philosophy because he he lived in a way that would persecute and punish followers of Jesus. And he was so convinced that he was right. Until one day, in the book of Acts, he's on the road to Damascus and the Lord shows up and blinds him. So that'll get your attention in a hot second. And slowly heals him as the days go by using this man named Ananias. And that impacts Paul's life and the way that he thinks about the world. And so he's speaking from experience. He's not speaking from opinion. This hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of the world rather than on Christ. Let me tell you about the basic principles of the world in the first century. Uh, They believed that what kept the world going, those forces, you should worship them. So we should worship the earth. And you should worship the air. You should worship fire. You should worship water. And if you didn't, those spirits were going to come and get you. And they also believed in this way of looking at the world called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism essentially is this. 
It's the separation between what is spiritual and what is material. So Gnostics, people who believe in Gnosticism, would say, well, I'm fine with God existing, but I'm not okay with God showing up. Because the spiritual never merges with the material. So like that whole incarnation deal, where like Jesus comes in flesh and gets down in the dirt of things, that's not on the table. Because that's not how the world works. And Paul wants to be careful that the Colossians don't take a little bit of this spirit worship, put it in their bowl, and mix it up. He wants to make sure they're not going to take Gnosticism and put it in their bowl and mix it up. Because the batter looks the same. The batter looks the same way that a batter without mayo and pickle juice would look. But the proof comes after it bakes for a while. And so Paul is speaking something into the Colossian people that they cannot yet see. That what damages your faith is not always what you remove. But sometimes what damages your faith is what you add. So church, be careful what goes in the mixing bowl. And just because you have it, is it accessible to you? Just because you have it in your cupboard doesn't mean it belongs in the bowl. Just because you can find it in the world doesn't mean it belongs in the bowl. Who knew that Paul was such a great baker? Not me. Verse 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, we'll start with, let's just do verse 9. He's the head over every power and authority in verse 10. And you have given full, been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but a circumcision done by Christ having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raises the dead. So you've been given fullness in Christ and he's the head over every power and authority. So a word that shows up in Colossians again and again and again and again is this word pos. And it means each, it means every, it means all. So Paul says he's in all things. He is above all things. This is for everyone. If you lay out Colossians, it's each, it's every, it's all, again and again and again and again. And so he's the head over every power and authority. So let's talk about power and authority in the ancient world. So Paul says he's the head over all of the ancient powers. Like what made the ancient world run. The ancient world is this power and shame society. It's what it's built on. It's built on the idea of being in debt to someone else. It's how slavery gets going in the ancient world. It's because like our family owed this family over here, and so we're working off a debt. And the debt gets passed from generation to generation. Just goes down, down the line. Paul says that Jesus is carries more authority than that even does. So these ancient powers, modern powers, political power structures, economic power structures, racial power structures, they are all rivals of Christ. 
And so Paul will say, if there's, if there's anything that is vying for your attention, if there's anything that's vying for your trust, if there's anything that's vying for your worship, it's a rival. And so I will tell you that the number in your Wells Fargo, Bank America, whatever, Service First Federal Credit Union bank account, whatever that number is, it is a rival of Christ. Because it is possible to serve that number more than serving the one who has rescued and restored and redeemed you. And you know that little cute mailbox that you pull your mail out of each and every day or every couple days if you get busy? That place that you live? Apartment, house, condo, camper? It's a rival of Christ. Because it's possible for you to love and serve that more than him. Our political structures, I'll tell you the Democratic Party is a rival of Christ. Same thing happened in the first service. Got real quiet. I can hear everyone's breathing. And it's possible for us to trust in that organization that power more than Christ. I'll tell you, the Republican Party is a rival of Christ. If we trust more in that organization than him, every leader, every organization, I'm not calling it bad, I'm not calling it sinful. I mean, this is Paul's idea. So if you have questions, thoughts, or comments, you can email the Apostle Paul at invitation605.com and he will get back to you. Paul wants the Colossians to hear with as much clarity as he can muster. There's a lot of rivals of Christ in the earth. There's a lot of things in the cupboard you can mix into the bowl. And Paul wants to say, don't do it. Because you might not be able to see the effect of it now, but I promise you, you will see the effect of it in the future. So the invitation for these powers to have rule in our life, it's both sinful and unnecessary. And this is the story of Daniel. Daniel's this teenager who gets kicked out of his home into Babylon. And then there's this guy named King Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, hey, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to blast a sound of music. And then when that happens, everybody bows down to this statue that I've created, this power that I want you to set your eyes on. And Daniel's like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And King Nebuchadnezzar was like, well, if it doesn't happen, here's the consequences of what it's going to look like. And Daniel says that, why? Because he knows that the God of Israel is the head over every power, over every authority. So it doesn't matter what it is or what they're saying or what they're asking. He just knows that he doesn't listen to those things like he listens to God. And I just wonder if that's true of us on this day in 2020. I wonder if like we listen to God unlike we listen to other things in the world. Or if God is competing 
with these other things that we're listening to. So Daniel understands it's both sinful and unnecessary. I don't need to bow down to this, whatever it is, this image. I don't need to do that. Because I serve a higher power and a higher authority. And then verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in your uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you what? God made you alive with Christ. And he forgave us all our sins. He forgave us all our sins. It's that word pos. And here's my question. Like what sin do you believe outmaneuvers God's forgiveness? Like as you think about your life, as you think about your own brokenness and your own need for him, like what deep down do you believe, well, yeah, this thing is going to outmaneuver God's forgiveness. Like if you've ever watched a parent try to chase a three-year-old in the mall or in like a crowded space, they're always two and a quarter steps behind because little kids have quick hips quicker than the rest of us. And so the parent's always like, you know, kind of chasing behind. And I wonder if sometimes like that's how we think of what's happened on the cross and what's happened deep within us. Well, yeah, but like what that person did, what that person said, what that person poured into my life, man, like... I don't know if God's forgiveness can outmaneuver that thing because that thing was big. And I'm not saying like what you would say in church or in a Bible study, but I'm talking about like what you actually think and what you actually feel when you lay down each and every night, when that head hits that pillow. Like what do you actually believe about the power of the cross? And even like the stuff that's, that we've done, the things that we've said, the decisions that we've made, do we believe that the cross can outmaneuver that power? Because here's what's amazing about Jesus. The victory that he has over sin and over death and over hell becomes our victory. Like this thing that we had nothing to do with. We get to receive because when we receive Christ, we receive his wisdom, we receive his, wisdom, his love, we receive his victory. And I don't know if you've ever noticed at a child's birthday party that it doesn't really matter whose birthday it is. Everybody's celebrating. You still get cupcakes. You still get a to-go bag. There's probably pizza and ice cream involved. And so it doesn't matter that it's Tyler's birthday because like I'm still celebrating. I had nothing to do with this and I'm a part of this. And I just think in the American church, we need to have a vision for God's victory. We need to understand, I think in a more full way that because of what God has done in Christ, victory is available for us. So that thing in your family of origin that is big, that maybe a lot of people don't know about, that big power, because of what Jesus has done, victory is possible over that thing. 
whether it's spoken or unspoken. Jesus has victory over that thing. So Paul says, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he what? He took it away, nailing it to the cross. So there's two barriers that stand in between God and his people. Barrier number one is what Paul calls the written code. And then he also says the powers and the authorities stand against membership in God's family. So the written code is the, is the Torah, this law. And don't think Ten Commandments. How many of us struggle with the Ten? Let's throw like 600 on top of that. This like unreal, there's no way we could live into all of this. Jesus, Paul says, has canceled that code and he's done something kind of violent with it. What has he done? He's nailed it to the cross. And so the Torah stood against Jews and Gentiles in a different way. It shut up the Jews under an impossible standard and it shut out the Gentiles from the hope of being a part of God's family. And God canceled the written code that stood over them, disqualifying them from life in the new age, but he took it away, nailing it to the cross. So how many of you know that it's different? It's one thing to just throw away mail in your recycling. Yep, don't need that, don't need that, don't need that. It's a different thing to rip something up and put it in the garbage. It's a little bit of a more violent way to deal with it. And when, I, when you hear what Jesus has done with the written code, he's not just thrown it away. He's ripped it up and he's put it in the garbage. That's like a statement. And so more even than our sins being nailed to the cross, Paul says that the written code has been nailed to the cross. And what's always disqualified us from a relationship with God has been removed by his grace and through his victory. And then verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So verse 15 is the effect of verse 14. He disarmed the powers and authorities. And he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. So like, who are the powers and the authorities in the ancient world? There's two of them. There's Rome. And Rome is the highest political power. Like you think American politics have gone off the rails. Let me introduce Rome to you. This neighbor that no one wants to have called Emperor Nero. There was no opposing Rome. What Rome spoke was gospel. And then Israel. Israel is the highest religious power. And at the cross, the powers, Rome and Israel worked together to, to, to beat Jesus up, to strip him naked, to hold him, hold him in public contempt. And people are, are making fun of him. Like, hey, Jesus, like, oh, you performed all these miracles. Remember, like, water into wine while you come down from the cross? Like, remember you raised Lazarus to dead? Like, come, come down here. If you really raised him, why not you raise yourself? And they celebrated the triumph over him. 
I think if it happened today, we might have seen those soldiers like take a picture of themselves with what has happened in the background. And I know that's a hard image. But that's the way in which they were celebrating what they had done to Jesus. But here's the paradox of the cross. As that was happening to Jesus, God through his son was stripping them naked, was holding them in contempt, and he was celebrating victory over them. And so the cross, I believe, becomes a a source of hope for everyone who has ever been held captive by Rome or by Israel. Like if you've spent one second of one hour, of one day, of one month, of one year being held captive by Rome, or if you've been held captive by Israel, what is the cross? The cross is the hope of the victory that you can have. But the cross is also the affirmation of God's hatred for sin. But also a determination to save. So it's both. It's both that God hates the mess that has been made of his world. But it's more than that. It's he's so determined to save. Like we cannot ever fully grasp like how determined Jesus is to save. So that person in your life that you're like, man, I don't know. Oh, you need to know that Jesus is far more determined than you are to save that person. Far more determined. It will never be a contest. And the way that you love that person doesn't even to compare to the way that Jesus loves that person. And oh, what you would do to change this person's situation. Jesus has already begun that effort. And we can partner with him. We can trust him in that process. But Paul to these new followers of Jesus says, be careful what you add to the recipe because it will change the result in ways that only will become more visible later. So this morning, I just want to end by asking you like, What's in the bowl? Like, is your own knowledge in the bowl? Like, it's like Jesus and like what I know about him. And it's kind of like how I I can kind of hang my hat on the knowledge I have of him. Or I can hang my hat on like my experience. Or I can hang my hat on my effort. Like how many of us, we wake up and the day starts at zero and we see how many points we can get before it's night-night time. We can hang our effort on that. It's just, it's only Jesus. Jesus plus nothing. I'm not going to say Jesus is in the bowl because that's already obvious. But what are we tempted to take from the cupboard and put in there and mix it all together? This year, as you think about this year, like what have you been tempted to add? And this week, what have you been tempted to add? In Paul, in writing to the Colossians, he needs them to understand both the grace of God 
and the power of him bringing about his justice in the world. So when we talk about grace, what is it? We sing about how it's amazing. And it's probably the most popular church world church word there is. Uh, there's a man who has gone to be with Jesus now, but he's really influenced the way that many of us know and experience grace, and his name is J.C. Chambers. And the way that he has talked about grace, I remember one time he swung over to my office because he was going somewhere, and he wanted to just hang out and have a conversation, and we were talking about grace. And he, you know, he would, he's one of those person, people that kind of looks down like through his glasses, you know, if you have somebody like that in your life. And he said, he called me bro a lot. He's like, okay, bro, two sides of grace, man. Side number one, what you bring doesn't disqualify you. No matter what that is. No matter what like you walked into this room with doesn't disqualify you. But there's another side. The other side of grace is we got some stuff to talk about. So it doesn't disqualify you, but we have some stuff we got to talk about. And when we can do that, we're living in grace. And I think that's what Paul desires deeply for this community of followers of Jesus. Because he's worried about what they put into the bowl. And so when he asks them about that, it's grace. Because what they have done, what they have taken and put in the bowl doesn't disqualify them. But we've got to look at it. And so this week, I just want to ask you to do something. When you're making supper, you're making brownies, you're making cheesecake, whatever it is you're going to make, and you get out that mixing bowl, and you start putting ingredients in, be careful. Don't just throw a bunch of stuff in there because it's going to impact what comes out. And like when you go to work tomorrow, when you wake up in the morning, be careful because it matters very much what you have put in there and what you continually put in there. That's Paul's message to the Colossians. That's Paul's message to us. This morning, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for these people, for their lives, for the gift that they are to me, for the place they have in your kingdom. God, I pray that we would be people who have received you, received your love, your image, your wisdom, your victory. And that we would carefully examine What gets mixed in to the life that we have in your name? Because we know that there are lots of rulers and powers and authorities who would desire to be a part of that recipe. But we want to be a people who will say, only Jesus.